Good morning, Second Service. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you. I see a lot of new faces. Welcome to you, those of you that are new. Uh, we had a we had a really good first service, and uh, the distribution of attendance was a lot better than it was last uh, time before the summer. So uh, that's great. Thank you all for coming today. Uh, today I'm. Extra excited because we are kicking off a new sermon series that's very near and dear to my heart. Uh, the series title is Safe and Holy, and uh, today's sermon title is Safe and Holy Part One. And we're going to go several weeks uh, into this series, and I am intentionally leaving it open ended so we can. Uh, respond to uh, what have you as the series progresses and develops. Today, I'd like us to start by reading Mark chapter 2, verse 13 to 15. So uh, let's read this together, or I'll read it, uh, and you can follow along with me on the screens or in your own Bibles. Mark chapter 2, verse 13 to 15, and I read from the New English Translation. Verse 13, Jesus went out again by the sea. The whole crowd came to him, and he taught them. As he went along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Follow me, he said to him. And he got up and followed him. As Jesus was having a meal in Levi's home, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Can we start with a word of prayer? God, thank you for gathering all of us here today. Uh, we want to um, experience your presence in a way that is powerful. We pray that there would be uh, openness and excitement in our hearts. And we pray that... Uh, the things that need your finger on in our life, you would put your finger on those things, and we would uh, know that you care, and you love, and you're working, and we would experience hope together as a church. Thank you uh, for letting us be church this morning. We come to you together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, some of you have heard me mention these words before, safe and holy. Uh, some of you uh, know the word holy, many of you, all of you know the word safe, uh, but very few of us have seen it sort of come together, juxtaposed as a phrase, uh, safe and holy. And today what I want to do is I want to unpack what these words mean uh, as way of introduction. Uh, we're going to have a part two next week, and then after that we're going to really drill into different parts of what safe and holy is, but today I just want to simply introduce these words, get you familiar with these words. Allow me to say that these two words together as a phrase, safe and holy, really have come to be very meaningful to me. It resonates with me in a very, very special way. I experience a lot of uh, life and truth through these words. It's maybe even a worldview of mine. 
And uh, in, the interest, in, in the interest of full disclosure, let me also say that uh, for about seven or eight years or so, I've been trying to write this book about being safe and holy or what safe and holy means. Six times I've tried. Uh, I mean, uh, five times. This is the sixth time now I'm going to try to write this book. And I've been trying to do this for the last couple of months. And uh, this time, I feel a little bit more serious about it. I feel a little more ready to do it. But I've said that five other times before. So knock on wood. And I ask for your prayers. But I've been waking up uh, several hours before I normally do, uh, before the kids are up, and trying to intentionally have focused time to write this book. And I'm happy to report that I've successfully written a terrible introduction to the book. So uh, there you go. My goal today is as we begin to introduce these ideas, safe and holy, and then coming together as one concept, I really want you to be able to completely embrace this idea. And I want you to be able to believe in it as, as I do and desire it for yourself and for our church And I want you to begin to see your life and your world through the lens of safe and holy. And really, by the series end, what I really want for us is for you to see through me to a spot five years in the future. And I want you to see yourself as a safe and holy person. And I want you to be able to see our church community as a safe and holy place a place that you would want to be at, a place that you are proud of and you're excited about, a place that you would not think twice about inviting other people to. I learned a new phrase this week or an acronym. The word is FOMO. Anybody know what FOMO is? FOMO is uh, Silicon Valley lingo, and this is the uh, uh, word that Uh, one of the most successful venture capitalists of our time used. It's an acronym that stands for fear of missing out. Okay? FOMO. I want us to experience FOMO in this series, that you're going to come to church and you're going to listen online and you're going to listen again and really catch the vision for what safe and holy can be. And I want you to feel that, you know, just the way when you make a sales pitch to a venture capitalist, you want them to fear FOMO so they give you lots of money, right? I want you to feel that for this series. I want you to covet it for yourself so that you would come and hear it and invite others to it. Okay, two points today, safe or holy, and then safe and holy. Okay, first, safe or holy. As a group, uh, there was a religious group called the Pharisees. We're just sort of picking on them today. And these were people who were deeply religious. They spent, devoted their entire life to being religious, to seeking God, his will, for their lives, and they stood as standards for other people all around them who did not have such devotion or calling in their life. At the very least, they were self-declared as quote-unquote holy people. But what we see is that they were not safe 
people. In fact, they had some self-awareness about their own inability to be safe in their own holiness. So, for example, they had written into their own religious laws what we would call today proximity rules about other people who were not considered holy. Not only could these people not interact with or touch or mingle with people who are deemed to be unholy, but they literally couldn't get too close to them. Because if they got too close or, God forbid, they touched them or ate with them or interacted with them in some significant way, they had to go through uh, ceremonial cleansing rituals to cleanse themselves and get themselves back to a status where they were considered holy. That's, where the, that's what the Pharisees were. And it's this context that Jesus shows up in. Now imagine in this context where Pharisees rule the day. Here's this guy. People call him rabbi. People consider him to be a prophet, a man who speaketh with authority, as the King James says. And he, not only does he get close to so-called sinners and lepers, but he touches them. And so we have in this passage all this crowd coming to Jesus. They are drawn to him. There's something so compelling about Jesus. And in contrast to the Pharisees, we have Jesus who gets close to a leper who was definitely categorized as unclean, but not only gets close, but Jesus touches the leper. And instead of Jesus getting defiled, what happens? The Gospels tell us that the leper becomes cleansed. And so both are clean. So the Pharisees, they had this so-called holiness, but if they got close to a sinner, they became defiled. But here Jesus is, supposedly a rabbi, supposedly has an in with God. And here he gets close and he touches a sinner. But instead of getting defiled, the sinner becomes cleansed. Here's what we see in Scripture that Jesus commanded this broad spectrum of people. That there were these religious people, there were these sinful people, there were men, there were women, they were sick, they were healthy, wealthy, poor, sinner, saint. All of these people able to come to Jesus, drawn to Jesus, and yet these people would not get near these so-called religious people. How is that possible? Why was that phenomenon happening around Jesus? And I want to submit to you today that the Pharisees and all their religiosity and all their claim to fame, they were either safe or holy. But here was Jesus who was both safe and holy. And therefore, he was able to draw such a broad spectrum of people. Now, what about the church? If Jesus commanded such a broad spectrum of people, what would you say is true about the Christian church in general today? Would you say that the church is both safe and holy? 
Would you say that the church commands a broad spectrum of people and that people flock to the church? The people who claim to be Christians, the people who claim to be religious, the people who claim to be righteous, they come to church. And the people who are so-called sinners, the marginalized, the disenfranchised, the poor, the spiritually poor, do they flock to the church? The people who are in need, do they say, oh my gosh, my life is spinning out of control. I better get to church. There's some things in my life that need fixing. I better get to church. Is church the medicine of the day? What do you think, in general, is true about the church? One of the questions I used to ask all the time as a director of church planning to potential church planters was, do you have the gift of evangelism? Now, evangelism was a huge deal in church planting. For those of you who don't know, church planting is the business of startup church. Churches aren't just existent. They have to be started just like companies. And so we would find these people who are called and gifted and ready to plant churches, which is a really hard thing to do. Imagine you had to start a church. Like, what would you do? Just how do you get people to come? Right? And so we would say, you have to develop a network of people and you have to get all the people you know that you could possibly know enough to invite, get them to all come to church. And average, that's about 75 people. And then those 75 people, they have to tap into all of their networks and they have to invite people that they know to come to church. And then we can hit about 150 people. Then we begin to have some legs under our feet as a church. But until that happens, you can't really be a viable, self-sustaining church. Right? And so we would say evangelism is the name of the game. Because if you're not inviting people to church, and if the people you invite who come to church, if they don't invite people to church, then you're dead in the water. It's game over. Because it's those people, it's people that give resources to the church that pay your salary and turn the lights on and you have money for programs and create what we experience as church. If they don't give, we don't exist. And they can't give if they don't exist. Right? And so they would just shudder at this question. Do you have to give? And my answer always is, everybody's got the gift of evangelism. Think about it. Everybody is excited about something. Don't you tell your friends and fr- neighbors and coworkers about stuff that you care about, that you experience as good and as something you believe in, that it's a lifeline to you? Haven't you ever told somebody about a book or a movie or a recipe or a hike or a new restaurant or a new church? Haven't you ever done that? Of course you have. I have sold so many Apple products. I cannot count. I have sold so many shoes and Subarus and Eats. And I really care about things. And so when I find something that I believe in, I say, oh, you got to try this. You have to. You know what? Let me pay for this movie for you. I'll go with you to see it again. Because I want you to have that incredible experience that I had. When I came out of that movie, I had no idea where I was. 
I was completely transported into the year 2070. It was incredible. The graphics were amazing. The acting, oh my gosh, I wept like a baby. This is what was happening in Jesus' ministry. Jesus would tell people, he would plead with people to not tell other people about what Jesus just did for them. It's it's what theologians call the messianic secret. Please don't tell anyone. But they would blab all day long. Why? Because they experienced something good and true. There was something powerful, something they needed so much. And when they went to their friends, their community, and they saw the needs around them, they said, oh my gosh, Jesus told me not to tell anyone, but I got to tell you, I met this man. I think he might be the Messiah, the anointed one that we've been waiting for, the one that those other religious people told us would come. I think he's here. I need you to meet him. In fact, I'm throwing away my nets. I'm going to go follow this man. I'm going to give my life to him. I realized my life the way it was, I can't go back. It's not worth living that way. What was happening? They were experiencing something they were so excited about. It tapped into the natural evangelistic instinct that all of us have. It's just called being people. It's being alive. We're social. We're pack animals. This is what we do. We evangelize about the things we care about about the things we're proud of and believe in. I got to tell you, most people do not feel that way about their church. They cringe when the church or some preacher is on the news. They cringe when they think about bringing a co-worker to church and they have to deal with what the preacher is going to say. How are they going to face them again on Monday? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, what would you think about yesterday? No, I'm not going to even ask. I'm just going to avoid that person altogether. How do you feel about your local church? How do you feel about Christians? How do you feel about Christianity? What's the most exciting thing to you about your faith? For me, it's the person of Jesus. I don't hate the church. I love the church, but I love the potential church even more. I love, though, what the potential church and the present church is about. It's Jesus. He was both safe and holy. He wasn't like the Pharisees. He doesn't have proximity rules. He's not somebody that I have to worry about. He's so exciting to me. There's something so attractive and compelling. You know, um, I think in my own personal experience, just anecdotally speaking, uh, people used to have a way more allergic reaction uh, an awkward reaction to my being a pastor when they found out. You know, people used to say this if, you know, inev- inevitably they would ask the question, so what do you do for a living? And I would say, oh, um, actually, and I would have to always start with actually, actually, I'm a pastor. And then people would say this, oh, well, that's okay. <laughs> what? What do you mean? Now, I think the church and religion has lost some standing and respect. It's been pluralized enough. It's fallen into the backdrop of other nice things in the world. And there's a sort of openness to religion and to pastors that people have. So now, if I say, oh, actually, I'm a pastor, they, I hear this a lot is, oh, that's nice. And I think, 
That is nice, but I don't want to be just nice. There's this pressure to become safer at the expense of holy. I don't want safe or holy. I don't want holy or safe. I really want both. I want to be such a place that the full spectrum of people flock to our church because they experience something of Jesus. There is something that they experience as a lifeline here in this place. And they are proud and excited, naturally overflowing to tell other people about who we are. And I want those people that you invite to want to come even before they get here because they're excited about who you are as a person. This uh, business guy named John O'Nolan wrote a very interesting article called The Secret Sauce. And he's a business guy and he talks all about uh, the secret to succeeding in business. And throughout the article, this is his whole point. He says this, the secret sauce that all business people need to know is that it's not about the business that you're doing. It's all about people. He says, you are always selling yourself and the effectiveness with which you sell yourself determines who will do business with you. They will remember you if there is a job that pops up in Microsoft. This is an actual example he gives. They will call you and say, hey, Bob. Hey, do you remember me? My name is Jim. Remember we had that lunch together? Hey, listen, I remember that you were into graphic design. And I got this little project and I'm looking for some contractors. Are you interested in some work? Why does that happen? Our ex-Yahoo guru wrote a book called The Likeability Factor. And he says that your likability as a person is the most important factor in your life because that is the greatest determiner of how other people will respond to you. Whether they like you or not. It's not your skill set. It's not all the experience you bring, but it's whether you're likable or not. And he says it's true because the far majority of the most important decisions that are made in your life are made by other people for you, about you. Like who you marry, what job you get, and who says yes to you, who says more to you. It's determined by other people. And if they like you, they will say yes to you. And This American Life, this past week, did a story. The title was, It's Not the Product, It's the Person. And the whole hour-long program was about you being the product. That it's never about the product. It's never about the business. It's all about you, how you are, who you are. And people are saying yes to you or no to you. Church. There is no organization that's the church. This building is not the church. Well, you know what the church? It's us. We are the church. It's the people that make up, constitute the church. And my question to you is, are you somebody that other people would be excited about? Do they like you? Are they drawn to you? Do they catch, whether you realize it or not, a glimpse of Jesus? Because you are both safe and holy. The way human nature works is we will either fall on the side of safe or holy. This is what happened to the Pharisees. It's not because they were worse people. It's because they were people. 
And this is my temptation as a pastor. I want to be either safe or holy. You know what? This happens to me. Here's a little pastoral confession. Sometimes when I meet somebody who's not a Christian, I feel so much pressure to somehow in some cool, slick way to communicate to them that I'm not really like a typical Christian. I feel like I have to sort of just drop drop like a line in there about how I like beer or something just so they'll think, oh, no, he's normal. He's just like me. There's something I can relate to. Or maybe I have to use a rough word, like, you know, say something that's a little edgy. And they go, oh, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought he was a pastor, but he might actually be cool. For me, in my mind, it's like I'm going to sacrifice some holiness to be safe. Or if I'm really holy, then I feel like, oh, people will think I'm not safe. These are the two either-or categories that are easier for us to fall into. And it's my experience of the church that we are either safe or holy. What would it take for our church to be safe and holy? Do you think our church, do you think you are safe and holy? I think if I were to do a survey, Christians as a category, category would be thought to be both unsafe and unholy. I think most people who are not in the church experience Christians as generally unsafe, that Christians are judgmental and hypocritical and harsh and escapist and part of a subculture and out of touch. They have other experts they will go to. Or they experience us as unholy, made famous in the news by acts that are unholy. There goes the church again being corrupt. There goes the church again being, being in denial about how corrupt they are. How can they claim that they follow a God of love? when they are so unloving, when they are at the center of so much atrocity and scandal? I think at best, at best, we might be safe or holy. But actually, I think it's far worse. I think most people would say we are unsafe and unholy. And so the question I want us to talk about for the next several weeks is this. What does it mean to be both safe and holy? What would it be for us if sinners would want to come and flock to us, but also those who are religious and who are uh, very serious and pietistic about their faith would want to come to us? What would it be like for us to have a worship service that is as Christian as you get, but at the same time, it's incredibly compelling and magnetic to those who don't know Christ? Why both of those things? Well, because that's who Jesus was. The people who claimed to be religious, they were repulsive to those who needed what they claimed to offer the most. If you actually genuinely have the light of Christ shining through you, if you really are the light of the world and the salt of the earth, should not all those around you want to come the way they wanted to come to Jesus? Should not those who experience you or this church want to tell everybody else about it? Wouldn't their evangelism instinct be kicking in high gear? 
Isn't that what Jesus' ministry was? Isn't that who he was? The church can claim many, many things, but if we claim to be followers of Christ, which is the essence of what it means to be a Christian church, then one of the telltale signs, one of the first things that the church should show is the attractive quality, the compelling quality that marked the ministry of Jesus, that there were many who followed him, that sinners and saints alike came to him by day and by night, 24-7. It should be. The problem we should have is, please, can you not come? Can we take turns coming? Can you just come once a month? Wouldn't that be amazing? Imagine we were just breaking fire code every time we met. Imagine that lobby just filled with people standing, staring at the screens out there. That's what Jesus' ministry was like. Sometimes he was so crowded out, he literally had no space on land. He had to go out on a boat to stand in the water so people couldn't crowd him out. Sometimes he left that gathering altogether, went to a different part, and people would meet him there. Then he'd come back, and they would still be there. Sometimes they ran out of food. Sometimes they ran out of food again. Miracles were necessitated by the crowd and the full spectrum of people that came. And I think it's primarily because he was both a safe and holy person. I think he had a healing ministry because that's what happens around safe and holy people. It's the leper that gets cleansed. Jesus is so amazing to me. That's why I went into the church business. Not to sell the church, not to sell people, not to sell myself, but because there's something so compelling about the person of Christ. How was he? Who was he? Sojourners Magazine. Sojourners is an organization, a Christian organization headed up by a now infamous man named Jim Wallace. And uh, he says this. He says, these are the top six questions that the church will have to figure out the answers to if we're going to be effective in the next 20 to 40 years of ministry. Okay, he lists these six questions. These are not my questions. These are not your questions necessarily. But these are the questions he lists out. Okay, here they are. One, is homosexuality a sin? Number two, do gender roles have a place within Christianity? Number three, is evolution biblical? Number four, are non-Christians really going to hell? Number five, how do you interpret the Bible? Is it poetry? Is it instruction? Is it history? What is it? Number six, how do you explain the violence and killing that the Bible describes God participating in? Question of suffering. You know, just a side note that the question of suffering is a relatively new question. People in other times never asked the question of suffering because suffering was assumed. It was just a part of life. They were so used to it. But here's question number six. Why is there suffering in the world? And why does it that God seems to participate in that suffering? And what does the church think about that? 
Now, these six questions, I don't know how we're going to deal with it as a church, if we will at all. Some of them we have dealt with, we'll continue to deal with, but here's the point. We should be safe and holy enough to be able to tackle this together. And that process of trying to tackle these questions together should be attractive and compelling to all those around us. It would create such an energy that people would want to come to participate in the answering of these questions because we do it in such a winsome and compelling way. People asked Jesus hard questions all the time. And every time Jesus opened his mouth to answer, people were taking notes and telling their friends about what Jesus said. And even the Pharisees who wanted to hate him said, he speaketh as one with authority. Allow me to conclude here. I realize as a dad, you know, when I'm trying to talk to my kids, that I really, really feel the need for absolute standards in my life. As somebody who is more postmodern, somebody who wants to say yes, and somebody who wants to be understanding, especially to my kids who, who I want them to trust their dad and like their dad, I realize I really want and need absolute standards. I can't just be all relativistic or pluralistic as a person. I have a deep need for absolute standards in my life. When I'm involved in conflict resolution, I realize, well, it's not just everybody is okay and you're okay and I'm okay. No, there is a right and wrong. And we need to resolve this together. I need absolute standards in my life. I need holy in my life. I just been watching this movie this week called Fed Up. It's by Katie Couric. And it's, the, it's a movie about the food industry and all the sugar that's in all of our food. It's about the sugar conspiracy theory. And I watched this movie and I thought, oh my gosh, the food industry needs to be held accountable for the ways they're trying to addict a whole generation of people on sugar so that they can stay in business and take our money. This is what I was thinking. I can't hold these guys accountable if everything is okay. I need holy in my life. And if I'm going to teach my kids about not being addicted to sugar, I'm going to need holy in my life. Do you need holy in your life? Uh, The picture behind me uh, that you see is a kilogram. And... uh, uh, there's this uh, system, International Base Units thing. It's an international group of scientists who have uh, come together, and their job is to guard international standard of units of measure. Okay? SI base units. So, for example, uh, we have the meter. Okay? And the meter, according to... Uh, Send System International is the distance light travels in one over 299,792,458 seconds in a vacuum. That's the definition of what a meter is. Now, you notice that the definition is theoretical, right? Because we can't have the definition of the meter changing on us. We need it to stay the meter, forever because if it changes then nothing in this world is going to work countries can't work together companies can't work together your stuff won't work imagine the meter changed and your printer one day stops accepting the paper that you have 
It's like, what happened? Well, the meter kept changing. So your printer tray is now small. It doesn't fit 8.5 by 11 anymore. Imagine that happened, how unsettling that would be. Okay, now here is the definition of what a second is. And just for fun, read this with me, okay? The second is, ready, go. The duration of 9,192,631,770 periods of the radiation corresponding to the transition between the two hyperfine levels of the ground state of the cesium-133 atom. Again, theoretical. Okay? You don't have to Wikipedia this. This is true. (laughs) Now, all of the definitions, uh, according to System International, is theoretical. Everything we have. Because the need to preserve that unit of measure is so true. It's so strong. It's so absolutely necessary. Except, except for one thing. And that is our good friend, the kilogram. First of all, it's the only thing also with a prefix. That's another story. The kilogram, okay, according to System International, is this. Okay, let's read this together. Kilogram equals the SI unit of mass equivalent to the international standard kept at Servra near Paris. Isn't that weird? The definition of the kilogram is the thing kept in the basement near Paris. And that's what that thing is, that picture. It's a piece of platinum that's kept within a glass jar that's also within another glass jar. And here is the thing that's freaking the scientific community out. For some reason, they cannot explain. Okay? The kilogram has been losing weight And the last time they measured it, it had lost weight by the amount of one grain of sugar. And they don't know why. Can you believe this? Do you feel within yourself the need for an absolute standard? The kilogram, my friends, is changing. Our world. No, it's going to be okay. (laughs) But here's what the... um, the Louis XVI Commission, the creation of the kilogram, and the people who set out to create the standard of measure for kilogram uh, said these. These are their words in quotes. We wanted the kilogram to be eternal, unchanging, beautiful, and compelling. Eternal, unchanging, beautiful, and compelling. I resonate with that. That I desire things to be eternal, unchanging, beautiful, and compelling. But here's the problem. I want the absolute standard so bad. I need it to live life here, to hold the food industry accountable, to train my kids, to be a pastor, to be a friend, to be a good employee. I need standards in my life. And yet... I know about myself that I am a very inconsistent, broken, weird, messy, fragile, and shy person. I know this to be true about me. And if if there are any of you sitting here who don't know this about me yet, you're new. So welcome to Evergreen Covenant Church. Those of you who have been here, you know this is true about me. I lead with this. 
I can't hide this. I've tried. I've given up on it. I'm not all put together. My life isn't all rosy. It's messy. It's chaotic. It's complicated. And I'm moody. And I need help. I need healing. I really do need you and all that you offer. And I need God and whatever he has to offer me. I need that. I need safe. But I also need holy. What do I do? How do I get both safe and holy? I invite you this week to think really long and hard about yourself and your life and your faith and our church in terms of safe and holy. Are you a safe and holy person? Would your spouse, would your kids, would your friends, would your family members, coworkers say that you are a safe and holy person? Would they be evangelistic about who you are? I think we're going to have a really good next several weeks as we dive into this concept and really unpack what it means to be both safe and holy. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, it's my uh, uh, conviction that uh, we all, the world, really longs for Jesus. We don't label it that. But those of us uh, who have experienced the presence and power of Jesus in our life, we say that's true, that Jesus alone stands as the safe and holy person. And in, in him, in him is the face of the Father, the, the one who is holy. And in him is the, is the, uh, uh, the love of the Father, the, the safety And so we come to him today and we ask that us individually and us as a church will learn what this means to be both safe and holy. And we move towards that in Jesus' name. Amen.